Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. And welcome to another episode of the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network, bringing you the best interview segments and sound bites from Tennis Channel Live directly to your ears and podcast platforms. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and thank you for joining. The theme this week was Wimbledon, as Tennis Channel Live took a look back at the last five years of action at the All England Club, as well as some of the most iconic moments that have ever taken place on those hallowed courts. And we start with a local man. Tim Henman was Great Britain's pride and joy during his 14-year career on the ATP. And at Wimbledon, you could always be sure to find his fans watching Henman play at the now-legendary Henman Hill. He joins Paul Anacone and Steve Weissman on this week's TC Live to discuss his current role as an All England Club board member and how difficult that decision was to cancel the tournament this year. Hemman also breaks down Andy Murray's future amid his current injury status, what the working relationship was when Anacone coached Hemman, and some of his favorite memories on the TC Live podcast. We welcome a man who knows the grounds well, four-time Wimbledon semifinalist, current member of the board there at the All England Club, and also former pupil of our Paul Anico and Tim Henman. Great to have you here on Tennis Channel Live. Obviously, we know how things are going in the States, but uh, how is the UK dealing right now with the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been massively challenging, I think, for the whole country. I mean, where, where we live personally, we live out of town. We live in a small village, so we've got a little bit more space. So, you know, we can get out in the garden. Ironically, for sort of early April, the weather's been very, very good, which I'm sure has been challenging for sort of the government because they want people to stay at home. And, and um, said for us being out of town, we're able to, um, you know, exercise a little bit. My wife, uh, three daughters are here. So, um, yeah, it's been very um, unexpected, but um, no, we're, we're getting through it. That's good to hear, Tim. Obviously, Wimbledon announced it was being canceled on April 1st. You were a big part of the decision-making process. Uh, what went into that and why the postponement, the main factors to say we're canceling this year as, as opposed to playing later in the season? Well, I think first and foremost, it was amazing how quickly the situation um, you know, moved. And, and uh, we, were in, we were having sort of um, conference calls every Tuesday, um, keeping uh, an eye on, on what was happening around the world, but also within the tennis community. And I remember when it, uh, it was Indian Wells was cancelled, the players were all on site, and, and uh, a lot of people, I think, at that moment felt it was uh, somewhat of an overreaction. But I think in the preceding days and weeks, then you saw how quickly um, that, that things were evolving. The French Open obviously made uh, a knee-jerk reaction and, and uh, were looking at, at moving um, their tournament to the end of September. And I remember a group of us really on, on the committee at Wimbledon felt, well, you know, at least we won't have to make a decision for another four or five weeks because the French Open is four or five weeks earlier than, than Wimbledon. But once, um, you know, once the Olympics was cancelled, we started to understand um, a lot of different elements of, of health and safety really for our 
um, for our partners, for the delivery of the event. Um, I think we all knew um, quite quickly that it was going to be postponed or cancelled. And, and the more we understood the situation and, and uh, uh, that cancellation was, was the right thing to do. Tim, when you guys go through that, and we, you talked about a little briefly, everyone said, well, why don't you do it with no fans? What would that look like? How many people would you have to get on the grounds anyway, even if you did that? Yeah, again, that was a very um, you know, interesting uh, learning curve, I think, because uh, it, it was talked about. And, and you know, right now they're, they're talking about they, you know, the government don't like more, uh, more than two or three people congregating in one place. Um, if that potentially were to be eased to 50 or 100, you know, there are some sports, maybe football or soccer that could be played behind closed doors. But for Wimbledon to take place without any fans, you still need 5,000 people on site. And, and I sort of thought, well, is that, is that a slightly exaggerated figure? But when you start to think about the officials, the ball boys and ball girls, the court covers, the maintenance staff, the television production, catering, a certain amount of security, it really does, you know, escalate um, enormously quickly. So, uh, you know, 5,000, I, I think, being a pretty accurate number, you, you soon realize that that's, you know, was not uh, was not going to be an option. You know, you uh, mentioned uh, recently about Andy Murray. You said you he still felt he had some good Wimbledons left in him. He's got a, maybe a title or two left down the road. What What gives you that feeling? He's had a bumpy road right now with the injuries. Yeah, I, I think first and foremost that is going to be dictated by his body. But I, I, I think I made reference to, you know, when uh, Andre Agassi sort of had a sabbatical from the game and he was out for sort of eighteen months and and then he came back refreshed, uh, sort of reinvigorated to, to go again. And and Andy's had a, a very difficult journey. I mean, he he got to uh, the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. I think it was in twenty sixteen or maybe in seventeen when he played. Sam Query, and he was virtually on one one leg, and then he's had a bumpy road with the new hit. But to win back on tour in Antwerp towards the end of last year, I, I still think his his leg, his his hip was um, was gaining in strength. And I, having seen him play uh, practice three or four weeks ago, he looked a lot better. And, and so that's where you know for me the 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 optim the optimism comes from because he's still incredibly motivated he's hungry to to get back out on the on the uh, onto the match court so this is has been a difficult another difficult time that we're all de dealing with but i i'd like to think that if and when you know we can get back out there competing in in international tennis and and the is going to be keen he's going to be fresh um and i'd like to think he's still got a few more years left in him well, listen, Tim, we have so many fond memories together. You gave me more grief, I think, than any of the other players that I've coached, maybe combined over all the years, but so many great memories together of our years uh, working. It's really a pleasure. There we are at the uh, All England Cup back there, 2003 to 2007. You know, I, I've got the lads in the control room just kind of yanking my chain a little bit. They're just curious about you know, how often that you looked up and saw me kind of signaling dramatically, did you just blow off any kind of information I was trying to give you? Yeah, I, th I think this is a great opportunity for clarity and for those people interested out there. Um, the reason why we started working together was, was really, um, I enjoyed Paul's company. He was a great dinner companion. I never listened to what he said from a coaching point of view, but it was just 
purely for those four years at the end of my career to have someone around who, who I enjoyed their company. So, you know, if there were any, you know, signals from the box, then obviously that would have been coaching. So Paul wouldn't have done that. But I, I certainly, <laughs> certainly wouldn't have been listening much. Well, I, I can agree that Paul is a fantastic dinner drinking companion, whatever it may be, Tim. Uh, before we let you go here, uh, one of the, the, the reports that came out last week with the All England Club was having the pandemic insurance, which, by the way, was absolutely brilliant and, and getting about $141 million uh, in relief because of that. Uh, is there any thought in using some of those funds to helping those struggling financially players, coaches, everybody in the tennis world? Well, I think I'm, I'm certainly no expert on, on insurance policies, and I'm not quite sure where, um, you know, those figures are coming from. But I think when you reflect first and foremost, um, you know, we are very fortunate to have um, the, the insurance in place. Um, it will certainly, um, you know, fill a hole, but it's still going to be challenging times uh, it, it, it moving forward. And, and, you know, we are in such early days, so I, I've got no idea you know, of the numbers, what, um, you know, how much money, uh, how, how much of the revenue is, is going to be recouped. But, um, you know, our financial team uh, at the All England has done a, a fantastic job. I'm sure they've got an enormous amount of work uh, moving forward. And, you know, when the time's right, then, you know, there will be, you know, discussions about lots of, lots of different areas. But uh, no, it's, it's going to be a a challenging time. I think the communication between the ATP and the, and the WTA has been has been very important. And um, I know that certainly um, there's been talk from the tour's point of view of, of trying to support the players. So, uh, you know, for me, if we can take uh, some positives out of this very challenging time, it would be around communication. It would be around the tennis family, the tennis fraternity, getting around the table and, and really looking at the best interests of the sport and, and hopefully, you know, bounce back even stronger. All right, Tim. Well, we uh, look forward to the championships next year. Some fantastic insight also in the fact that maybe playing with no fans is not possible with 5,000 people needed uh, to put on the championships. Stay safe, stay healthy, Tim. And we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks for having me and great to chat. All the best. Next up, we have one of the fastest rising personalities in tennis broadcasting as Andy Roddick joins the show to discuss Roger Federer winning his eighth Wimbledon title in 2017. Roddick describes in great detail what it was like to play Federer in several Wimbledon finals, the undaunting task of playing the maestro on the biggest stage. He also breaks down his thoughts on both tours suspending the rankings during this pandemic. Here's Andy Roddick on the TC Live podcast. Now, welcome in Andy Roddick alongside Lindsay and Paul. Andy, you faced Roger Federer three times in a final at Wimbledon. What was it like being on the other side of a net from Roger Federer center court in a final? Uh, depressing at times. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, when, when he's kind of firing on all cylinders, and obviously it was a, a great run in 2017, when we played, uh, actually played him four years in a row. So I played him semis and then, uh, sorry, uh, semis final final and then another final later on um, in his prime though uh, you know he had the option of, of, of serving and volleying a lot more he played great defense he was able to keep that chip down and kind of get out of a tough situation uh, anytime I think uh, in his prime when he when he was maybe a step faster he passed amazingly well and I don't think that gets talked about enough because it it took away kind of a, a desperation option of just 
kind of going like a full on assault and being super aggressive. Uh, you know, you felt like you had to make a decision, but none of which were a good one. You know, Andy, one of the things I always found interesting watching Roger on grass is you look at him taking time away. And when he returns, even against a great server like you, it's not the oppressive return style like a Novak, but it's the hockey goalie style. But it still kind of puts you in awkward positions. Did that kind of return style make it more difficult for you to react to? Well, you're spot on, uh, Paul. It it was like a, it was basically like a volume play. He was going to make a ton of returns. But the other thing, like when, when I was playing, uh, when I was serving against guys and they were taking big cuts at returns or at least trying to hit over every return, uh, they were rarely going to kind of square it up perfectly. So I was going to win a bunch of the first serve points with Roger. He was able to, with very, very, very small movements, put the ball back in play. And once we were neutral, it was, it was his advantage. So uh, you know, there are probably better returners in the game against uh, servers. I, I was a good server who maybe weren't as as good a service as I was. Uh, you know, for me specifically, I didn't want the ball to get down. So I hit that little chip down on my back and I couldn't hit topspin. So we we kind of play the same point over and over. But his ability to kind of accept my pace with very little movement and make a ton of returns was was frustrating. Well, we always say that Roger makes it look so easy out there. So maybe sometimes he doesn't get the credit of what a great tactician he is also. Not only against you, when you saw him play against other players, do you think that's an underrated part of his game, what he's trying to do with his shots to disrupt the rhythm of his opponent? So I'll give a very specific story uh, that that kind of lends itself to your point. Uh, for a while, any time that I decided, and Paul probably knows this is going to laugh because I'm sure Roger talked to him about it when he was coaching him, but uh, for, for a long time, whenever I would try to run around a second serve return against Roger, I would always pick the wrong time and he would kind of pull the string and, and hit like a slice cut second serve. And so I guess I did something. I popped up like a quarter of a second early, earlier than I normally did just to accept a backhand return. And he knew that for 12 years and would just pull the string and he would kind of keep his <laughs> eyes on me for longer you know, he kind of has that thing where he could, he's looking at the returner longer than than most people do when they serve. And so I finally figured this out. Someone let it slip somewhere along the line. And the last couple of times I played him, I was getting, I was just cranking second serve returns. And he, you know, there was this moment where I got a hold of like three or four in Miami when I was playing terrible and he was still Roger. And I somehow won that match. But there was this look I remember like early on in the second set where he's he's going, oh, you know now. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna tell you. It took years to figure it out. <laughs> fool me once i mean one of the things that's interesting though about his serve too that i've found with the years i was with him andy is i you know even when i'm on the other side and he's practicing he's one of those a little bit like pete maybe not as much pace but he can hit lots of different targets with similar ball tosses so i found it difficult to read his serve as well what did you see on the other side i would say he was and i mean this in a positive way because i think the person who's messed with their toss and uh, pacing of their serve, they can play the kind of the hurry up. Was was Agassi was was not a like a, an unbelievable server from just a, a pace and movement standpoint, but he pitched such a good ball game. I, I say Andre was almost like a Greg Maddox, whereas Pete was more more powerful and had the placement. Also, I think Roger was almost a hybrid between the two. Uh, you, you know, twelve or thirteen years later and playing a bunch of times, uh, he could hit. He wasn't scared to throw. Uh, any serve in at any count. So I say like the greatest pitchers aren't scared to throw a curveball in a three, two count. Roger was the same way. Uh, he would throw in a, a 97 mile an hour kicker for a first serve just as easily as he would hit the big one out wide. Uh, and he, he didn't really have predictable habits. 
So uh, that made it that made it pretty frustrating. And he could move the second server around the box too, short in the box, long in the box, hit it both ways. So um, what he didn't have in just natural pace, and he still hits a great serve, you know, 125, 126 consistently, which if you're hitting your spots is 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 plenty. Um, but he he was a great uh, pitcher as far as just managing out, keeping you on edge, you not knowing what's coming fast, slow, uh, not having super obvious tendencies. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was annoying. Changing gears here a little bit yesterday, uh, the ATP and the WTA announced that they would freeze the rankings and they wouldn't count towards records or weeks at number one weeks in the top 10. You got into a little Twitter discussion with Brad Gilbert about it. I'm just curious on your take and if you agreed with the decision. Well, I, I actually don't think, uh, and Brad's take was, listen, Novak's, he's he's in pole position. You can't take it away from what he's earned. And, you know, if you walk it out, you know, he's most likely going to do this. And I said, you know, I, I agree with everything you're saying, Brad, except for the technicality of you have to play the matches to win and you can't get credit for matches you don't play and matches for that other people don't play. There's every chance that Novak could get hurt and Rafa could win a master series event. And then we're in the clay and he could run the table. So although you're probably right, it doesn't work with saying it's probably going to happen. So therefore we're going to give him credit, which could end up being an all time record. It's terrible for Novak. It is. I, if I'm him, I'm so frustrated. I feel like something's been taken from me. I get it. It's justifiable, but you can't just make assumptions. Therefore give credit for something that hasn't been played out. Yeah. I just think I agree with you. I just think, the what ifs or what ifs you want to make a decision like this, where there's a least likely of a subjective evaluation coming into play. And that's kind of what it seems like they've come up with. Have you gone through any other permutations of it that make any sense to you? No, I, 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 not specifically. And you'd have to think it out. I, I wouldn't mind. Maybe you give it back to Novak on the backside. Maybe if it's mathematically impossible for him to be overtaken in the next month, Right. So if he loses, let, let's say if he would have lost Monte Carlo, whatever, 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 and it was mathematically impossible for him to be passed. I'm happy with him getting that credit uh, on the backside. Um, but it has to be a mathematical certainty in my mind for him to get credit for those weeks uh, under any circumstance, meaning if he doesn't play and Rafa wins everything or someone else wins everything, he would still be number one. I'm happy with him having credit for those weeks, but it's not just open ended. You get credit for for uh, when people are off, when everyone's not playing. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. More from Andy Roddick later in the show. But up next, we're going to take a blast way in the past. I'm talking 1987. That was the year that an Australian by the name of Pat Cash won the only major of his career, beating Wheelander, Connors, and then Lendl in the final to do it. Cash joined the show to discuss with Steve Weissman and Mary Carrillo what it was like to go on that iconic run and how he started the tradition of going into the stands. He was the first person to celebrate by leaving the court and running into the stands, which has become kind of a tradition that many players do when they win the Wimbledon crown. Cash also has some thoughts on the current state of the game, especially in the Australian ranks. Here's Pat Cash on the TC Live podcast. 
And the great Pat Cash joins us now on Tennis Channel Live. And, uh, Pat, we tried to get you on four weeks ago during our greatest of all time shows. This was the early days of Skype, so not everybody was able to make a connection. But it's great to have you now. Uh, you were one of 17 Aussies to make our top 100 of all time. What did that mean to you to be one of the greatest to ever play the game? Uh, are you sure that's correct? I don't know about that, but... Um... Who voted? My, did my mum get a vote? She must have got a vote in somewhere. Um, we love but, you, Pat. Uh, no, it's, it's it's a great it's a great honour. I suppose I had some had a good had a good run for a short period of time in between my injuries. So uh, I was proud of what I did. Pat, I have to ask you: At what point after you won ma match point for the Wimbledon Championship did you decide decide to Billy goat your way up into the stands? Because it, it wasn't a clear path by any stretch. No, in actual fact, uh, it was. Uh, I, I, I thought about it the night before, and it was only that after I'd sort of sh shook hands with Ivan and the, and, the, and the umpire, I thought, you know what? And if you know, you know, you've been at Wimbledon, and you know how quickly the opening, the the, uh, the ceremony goes. And yes. before you know it, you look around, and the the carpet is there. The the ball kids are lined up, and the linesmen are there, and the royal family are halfway out. And I thought, wow, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So off I go. And in those days, they had this big area where there was standing room only, where there was um, there was no seats. Of course, now you think it's ridiculous. How did they have it? But they did this area where people could come and stand all day for a really cheap price. And I got to that area and I realized, oh, my goodness, there's no more chairs, people's <laughs> chairs. And no word of a lie, no word of a lie. If you, if you replay that back, right in the corner, as I'm getting on the commentating box, I'm standing there thinking, what am I going to do? And I looked down and there was a priest. And, and he said, stand on my shoulder, my son. And, what? And I was like, <laughs> I'm not joking you. I am not joking you. And and so I think oh my, this is you know it's a, this is this is divine intervention. I'm gonna and I stood on the guy's shoulder and I got my way up there. And I only found out later it was a guy dressed as a priest. Oh, uh, it wasn't a celestial moment because you did get to your father, our father. Um, <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this: I, you obviously were always able to play off the crowd so well, and it was an uproarious applause that you got when you won. I wonder if you can even imagine tennis coming back without fans. I mean, how much did fans do to you, and would you want to see tennis played without an audience? Uh, look, I don't think anybody wants to see tennis played without an audience, but I think tennis players want to play, um, and I think the public would love to watch some tennis you guys must be getting, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel talking to me now. You know, you just want some action out there and, and uh, to talk about, talk over that. Uh, so, you know, I think at this stage, anybody would be happy just to get out there and play. It's not ideal. You know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But I think most of the players are starting to, well, the players I've talked to and the coaches are starting to resign to the fact that there may not be any slams this year. There may be any tennis, but um, look, we, we don't know. And the only thing we can do is to stay stay fit and healthy. And I'm in a good, great position where I'm working with the young American Brandon Nakashima. And, um, uh, we, you know, we're out there. We're distancing every day. Good, the good thing about being a tennis coach or a, or maybe a golfer is that you, you're not really that far, not close together other than, you know, um, you know, throwing some balls in the basket or whatever. So... We can still continue a lot of work, but, you know, we, we want to compete. Well, Australia has of late produced Ash Barty and Nick Kyrgios. 
I wonder, it's such a sports mad country you come from, uh, how affected has Australia been by this pandemic? And, and what do you expect in the, has, as a break like this, is Kyrgios using his time well? Is Ash, she likes breaks and she's always done well with them. What do you think is going on in Australia? Well, uh, it, the Aussie, uh, it, it's, as I said, Australia was such a mad sporting nation that it, uh, we were probably one of the last people to pull away. Uh, we had our first round of the Auss- that Aussie rules that was uh, there and it's to an empty empty crowd, uh, empty stadium. Uh, I think Ash would be, you know, I think she'd be actually quite enjoying this. She's had a, you know, a big couple of years. I mean, what a, what, you know, we're so proud of her and she's loved by everybody. She, she goes along her own business. Uh, you know, I've had uh, some great association with her, working with Coco Vanderway. Of course, they won the US Open, and that almost kick-started her great rise. Um, I always thought it would be the US Open that she would do well. I, I, I didn't expect a French Open, but, um, you know, she, she played magnificently there. And, and what a, you know, to be number one singles and doubles at, at uh, you know, it's a phenomenal effort from somebody who, yeah, not 18 months before, uh, not even, um, was, uh, you know, 20 or so in the world. Um, and, you know, it, it really is a great performance. I think she'll enjoy the break. I think she needs a bit of a break. Nick Kyrgios, I, look, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not in a great, um, I'm not in communication with him particularly, but um, you know, I know he loves his uh, indoor PlayStation games and everything. So <laughs> he probably has burnt out thumbs is my guess. <laughs> Uh, virtual tennis. They're doing that in Madrid this year. Pat Cash, the legend, a premeditated dash with some divine intervention into the stands at Wimbledon. <laughs> stay healthy, stay safe, and thanks for taking the time to join us here on Tennis Channel Live. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Always great to hear from the legends of this sport and former major champions. And speaking of legends, a friend of not only Tennis Channels, but also of this podcast, Ted Robinson joined the show this week. Ted's a sports broadcasting pioneer with over 40 years of experience and someone who's called every single major. He completed that career slam on Tennis Channel's airwaves this past Australia. Ted's been calling Wimbledon matches since the year 2000, and he joined Mary Carrillo and Steve Weissman to take a trip down memory lane and reminisce on some of his favorite Wimbledon moments. Great to see you, Ted. Uh, How are things going for you, your Mary, and your family? Ah, thank you, Steve. It's great. Well, first of all, it's great to be able to chime back in with my Tennis Channel family. You guys have been crushing it with these shows. Um, real quickly, I'm about a week away from soft mullet here, okay? <laughs> and I think, I think maybe three weeks to ponytail. Okay. But I have to tell you, I have to tell you, Mary, you will appreciate this. The highlight <laughs> so far this session for me. Uh, we have out here, I'm sure you do too, you have these special hours where you go to the shopping, uh, to the supermarket early in the morning for the veteran shoppers, right? <laughs> so I go to my supermarket on Saturday morning about 7.30, I have to stand in line, and now I'm in line, and here comes some shoppers behind me, and I'm getting a little bit of a stank guy, that old New York stank guy, Mary, you can tell. I get to the front, and the security man who's running it goes, you know, this is the, uh, this is the senior shopping hour. And I said, oh, that's awesome. It's a great idea. He goes, you know, this is for 60 years and over. And I said, it's the best thing. I'm so happy. Look yeah. at how crowded it is. He goes, no, you have to be 60 <laughs> to come in. And I said, well, my two grandkids, oh. I made them promise I was going to bring them back special cookies. And he looks at me and goes, you're kidding, aren't you? I got oh. carded at the supermarket. <laughs> I had carded since I was in college. 
awesome. You got grandfather carded. That's outstanding. I'll tell you what, and I know it's been a short tennis season, but one of your bucket lists, one of the items on your bucket list was go to the Australian Open for the first time. And I'm very happy that you went in my place because I know you had a terrific time in Melbourne. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I listen, I've heard Mary and all, all of our, our colleagues talk about this forever. And I've been there for the Olympics, but never to Melbourne and never for the Australian Open. And uh, yeah, given that what we saw there is the last tennis we're going to see for a while, I'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled. And Mary, you you talked about it. I remember when 2017, we're watching 2017 Wimbledon today. I remember you talking about the 2017 Australian Open and how necessary it was yeah. to have the good stories of Venus and Serena and then of Roger and Rafa playing. And we needed that at the time. Right. I vividly remember that. And it carried, of course, into this Wimbledon that we're watching. Now, exactly right. Um, I, I know Steve has plenty of questions for you. Let me ask you, as someone who has covered many Olympics, baseball, football, are you of the mind that you can put sports back out there without fans? Sure, you can. I, I think you can, Mary. It's, uh, nothing is going to be easy right now. When we come back, nothing will be normal as we've come to know it. Uh, I've been very strong even going back to when the French Open made their unilateral decision to move. I think the sooner that competition begins, the better. However, we do it safely, and that's the obvious caveat has to be safe, safe for the competitors, safe for the workers, but it's jobs and and it's jobs for everybody. I think it's imperative that it be done as soon as safely possible. Yeah, I, th I think that's what everybody wants. It's got to be safe, but the sooner the better for everyone involved getting sports uh, back on the court, the field, wherever it may be, fans or no fans. Uh, Ted, uh, you've been covering Wimbledon for so many years. Uh, we spoke last night a little bit about the early years, 2000 to 2002, and what kind of stood out to you from, from those years of your experience? 40 years. Oh, my God. That is, that's tough to look at. <laughs> and you're still uh, getting caught. <laughs> oh, man, I know, I know. Uh, no, seriously, very, very quickly, the, the, I, I was extraordinarily honored to have a chance to go to Wimbledon for the first time in 2000. Um, I was hired to follow Dick Enberg, who's the greatest uh, tennis broadcaster in the role that I feel that I've ever seen in my life. So I was incredibly in awe of this opportunity. Um, I went largely because of the support of John McEnroe, who... Uh, therefore was instructing me on what was going to happen at this first Wimbledon, just as Mary did way before that, the first U.S. Open I ever worked with Mary in 1987. And Mary took me around um, and led me by the hand. And after one year of that, Carilla said, that's enough of this knucklehead. I'm going to make a dash for cash and go somewhere else. <laughs> but uh, anyway, the first, the, first, the first day I ever worked at Wimbledon, 2000, it was the Millennium Championships. And the first day that NBC was on the air, Wimbledon honored 59 former champions and they walked out on court. And again, because John was a friend, he had warned me about what was going to happen. It was an extremely important day for him because, you know, his, his history with Wimbledon was a little bit, you know, mixed. And he had just been hired by the BBC. It was a big thing for him. And John received an extraordinary ovation when he was finally introduced that day. But the moment I remember was sitting in the NBC booth and as the champions paraded on the court, Coming back to center court for the first time in 19 years, Bjorn Borg. And he walked along the baseline. And the, I've still to this day never seen a picture of it, but it was right in my line of vision from the NBC booth. He dropped to his knees and he kissed the baseline. 
And the attention of everybody in center court was really on the front of the procession. So this kind of was a sneaky moment by Bjorn. But to me, it was a sledgehammer right here to say that's what Wimbledon means. And later on, of course, that year, Pete wins and runs up in the stands. It was his record-breaking win. And he runs up in the stands to hug his parents. His parents had never been, as Mary knows, had never been around, had never been a part of the tennis scene. And the day before, it was the coming out party for Venus. Venus had beaten Hingis in the quarters. That was really her credibility announcement. Then she beat her sister in the semis, the first time they ever played in a big slam match. And then she wins the final. She got very lucky that day, from what I understand. And she wins the final. And I'm calling that with Chris Everett. And suddenly we think the roof is collapsing on our head. We had no idea that little bunker, what was happening. And we looked at the monitor and saw Richard Williams was jumping up and down on our head. <laughs> and you, those are very famous pictures of him holding the signs. And of course, all decorum was gone at center court. But I mean, literally, we thought we heard this thumping and there's about that much space between your, your head yeah. and the roof of this bunker, as Mary knows well. Uh, Richard Williams jumping up and down. But the point I'm making was that was a parents weekend. It was the Williams and it was Pete's parents. And that was such an extraordinary uh, uh, way to be introduced. The next year, of course, you had Roger beating Pete in a match that, again, I had a chance to call 200 serve volley points. Think about that. 200 serve volley points in one match. The only time Roger and Pete ever played. And then, of course, it ended up with the Monday final. And I know you talked about the middle Sunday play earlier this week. That Monday final is, um, I mean, the, the 2008 final is the greatest sporting event I've ever had a chance to be a part of. But the 2001 final at Wimbledon, the men's final on Monday, was exceptional because it was a Davis Cup final to the 10th power. Half center court Aussies, half center court Croats. It was extraordinary, something you'd never see at Wimbledon. That's awesome yeah, I, stuff. All I, can say, all I can say, Steve, is if that guy who carded Ted the other day could hear him now, he'd say, good God, this guy is old. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The 2019 Wimbledon men's final will go down in history as one of the greatest, most dramatic tennis matches ever played. Andy Roddick rejoins the show to discuss Novak Djokovic's triumph over Roger Federer, what it means for both careers going forward, and how Novak Djokovic has transformed himself into one of the most clutch players in the history of the sport. Along with Lindsey Davenport, Paul Anacone, Mary Carrillo, and Steve Weissman, here's Roddick on that match, as well as thoughts on some other news, including the Labor Cup's postponement and players lower-ranked receiving funding during the break caused by this pandemic. Andy, this match, time-wise, was actually longer than your epic against Roger that had no final set tiebreak. What were you thinking when watching this match between Djokovic and Federer? It was strange because I think we were out and about with our kids throughout the day, and uh, we were at a park, and it was like one set all, and then it kind of started getting dramatic, and I wasn't watching it from the beginning. And then uh, I just became transfixed. And um, I, I actually think Roger... Uh, 
probably outplayed Novak for for most of the day. But you know, Novak during crunch time has has become a different animal. I'm not sure I've ever seen someone from the start of their career where you would maybe count on them being a little fragile in those moments, maybe a little. Uh, you could grind them down physically, and then the, the the correction that he's made since the beginning of his career is certainly amplified in a, in a match like this. From where he started to where he's gotten is is something unlike I've seen before from uh, from a given player. You know, we talk so much about the great players and what they do at big moments, and you know, this has to be so difficult. I remember watching the match and just I was dumbfounded by Novak's ability to stay in there and win the big points. Roger, as you said, really outplayed him for 95% of the match, really. And and Novak played tremendous tiebreakers. I don't think he made any unforced errors in any of the tiebreakers. Roger created all the opportunities. And we always talk about narrow margins. I want to run a, a couple of videos here, Andy, and, and see what you think about narrow margins in terms of just make, missing targets and, and how you pay the price against a great, great player. First match point, you think, okay, he missed the first serve. He makes that. Novak is going, you see, he's guessing wide, and he's taking a step towards the front as if, like, if that actually made it, it's it, it's over. Um, you know, and then you miss a forehand here, and then all of a sudden you get a little tight. But Roger makes that first serve. It is an ace. It's probably a quarter of an inch, maybe. And then how does that affect the all-time slams record? And then, uh, as you see here, he makes his first serve, probably the best kind of first serve points one percentage of all time. Uh, it's really easy to say from the sidelines. Uh, he kind of forced that venture in. I, 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 he was, Roger has kind of always erred on the side of being aggressive, and it's obviously served him super well. Um, from that position where he was in the court on that last match point, probably a foot inside the baseline, not one where he was pot committed uh, to go into the net. And especially on that grass in the second week, it gets a little crunchy. It gets a little slippery. So, uh, one of the things I always thought about was if I was going to make a mistake on a pro shot, I at least wanted to make the person change direction. So one, I don't think he needed to force that ball in. And two, I think it needed to be against the movement of Novak as opposed to Novak hitting the return from the ad side. And then in one motion without having to switch directions, being able to kind of hit a very comfortable passing shot. The most undersold part about tennis is you run a great play in the NBA. You can call a timeout, plan something. All of these decisions are made on a moment's notice and our reaction. So even someone like Roger, who's been through this a million times, <coughs> excuse me, is a great decision maker, uh, you know, only has a second to react. And it's the finest of margins with those decisions that ultimately make a difference. There was two things that stood out for me watching that match. One was the emotional energy of Novak. And Andy, I, you said you watched a little bit of it. It was the most subdued I'd ever seen from Novak. He barely reacted when he won even. Why do you think that he was just kind of staying within himself for the entire five hours out there? Well, I think there's two things. And I, I think that's a, a really astute observation, Lindsay. I, you rarely see people lose it on center court at Wimbledon. Like it just, it, it, I don't know if it's the atmosphere, you know, you have like your epic meltdowns from the US Open of which I participated uh, a lot. Uh, you know, you see kind of those crazy <laughs> moments. You don't see someone take out a chunk of grass on, on center court or, you know, Johnny Mac aside, go absolutely nuts at Wimbledon. Um, you know, I think, I think that has uh, something to do with it. Also, I think Novak has kind of realized that He's playing in a way match most times against against Roger uh, as far as crowd support. And the more he kind of gives, the more the crowd will turn 
uh, against him more often than not. So uh, I think it's really smart of him to kind of realize uh, that him kind of blowing up or him becoming emotional will have negative effects past just that momentary uh, temper tantrum or, or kind of loss of control emotionally. The other thing is we were looking over the stats last night. I mean, it is out of control when you look at the stats for the match to process, one, how Roger didn't win this match, and then, two, if we look at the very bottom line there, that is outrageous in a five-set match. Three tie breaks were played. Novak didn't miss a ball. How is that possible? Yeah, so I don't know. I probably would have said it was impossible before seeing this. I, I didn't know that stat before uh, you had mentioned it before we came on air. Uh, you think over the course of three tie breaks, probably the, the, the biggest match of, of any given year is, is arguably a, a, a Wimbledon final against the person who is at, at, certainly at that moment considered the best of all time at his favorite tournament where he's won the most. I mean, and then you throw uh, a big zero burger as far as unforced errors over the course of three tiebreakers. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. But that tells the story why uh, Roger can play better for four hours and 45 minutes of a of a 457 match and Novak plays better for those 12 minutes. Listen, tiebreakers, you know, they, they, they tell a story at the end of the day. Yeah. When you look at that and you see someone like Novak, um, that basically plays a match like that. And, and Roger over five hours only has 10 more unforced errors, but he's got 40 more winners. You really think that they're going to tip the scales for Roger. And, and to me, I just think it gives Novak so much, um, credibility and, and such an amazing effort for him really to manage the composure, manage that environment. And a lot of it's about the big moment. Andy, how do you, how do, you do that in the big moments? How do you figure out how to stay composed and trust yourself in the finals of a Wimbledon, finals of a U.S. As, Open? If I'd have known, I might have had a title. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I think um, – you, you just stay the course. I think Novak has this this uh, this gift now, this mentality where he's been through it so many times. You know, you see people like a Michael Jordan. He could miss his last four shots, but he's still not scared to shoot that ball in the last five seconds. And and Novak, I don't think was that guy early on. He is certainly the definition of that guy at this point in his career, and uh, never more evident than than last year's Wimbledon final. We do have some news to go over today, uh, Andy, as we heard that another event has been canceled. Uh, the Labor Cup will not be held this year, moving to 2021, and that means no conflicts either with the scheduled time for Roland Garros. Yeah, I mean, this is smart. Listen, I, I don't know that I was a huge fan of the way that Roland Garros went about uh, kind of putting, planting their flag in the ground for their date, but in the greater scheme of things, Having Roland Garros with a little bit of space, hopefully, is more important uh, for, for the sport as a whole. Uh, Roger is uh, very aware. He gets the entire big picture. Uh, my big takeaway from this was I can't wait to play in 2021 in Boston. So that means, listen, you know, every year is a, is a significant commitment for Roger. So at least now his plans are to play through next year. So that was my positive takeaway from, uh, from this, this tough news. Andy, I think you're right. I mean, in a perfect world, if we're going to be squeezing things in to try to get stuff done, um, it'd be great to get Roland Garros in there. I agree with you. I wasn't thrilled about how they did it. And for Labor Cup, look, it's at the beginning when it came out, I was a little unsure if it was going to be a great event or not. And I've got to say, it's one of the most amazing events that I've been to and I've watched. 
but also because they're indoors, I think that has a lot to do with the decision. Don't you think so? I'm sure there are a lot of uh, a lot of parts to the decision. Um, again, Roger being conscious of of kind of the greater good for the sport is uh, is again like Rafa at the beginning in his clip with with how generous he is for his time in trying to support support uh, you know COVID nineteen patients in his uh, home of Spain. Roger getting the bigger picture. Um, you know, for someone who is as iconic. Uh, as he is, he he's he has this weird mix of understanding what he is, knowing his value, but also viewing himself on a humble level. Also, so uh, not surprising at all. Um, but to, to your point, like just to comment on the Labor Cup, uh, what they do with it, it, it seems like they've really kind of put their thumb on 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 the progressive parts of the event. I, I watch tennis telecast sometimes, and I wish something was way different than it was 20 years ago. And for Labor Cup, you get those you know, kind of look behind the curtain. You get uh, the interaction between players. You get, you know, they're okay with someone yelling and jumping and doing things that you wouldn't normally wholeheartedly approve of uh, in, in, in the normal tour schedule. So they've really kind of found their own lane and their own niche to, to, to kind of, uh, uh, I, I guess, agree with your point, Paul. They've, they've kind of figured out a special sauce to, to make them unique in the schedule. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be looking forward to their return in 2021 in, in Boston. We had some news about financial support uh, for some of the lower-ranked players reportedly uh, getting together the tennis organizations to offer $10,000 to players ranked between 250 and 700 in the world. What's your reaction to that? I think this is smart. Um, the, the early things I saw were people proposing $2,500 a week, and I'm going, we, we don't want them to, you know, <laughs> we want them to come back and actually want to play at the end of this thing, you know, and so I, I think this is these are the people who probably need it uh, the most. I think that if it's a collaborative issue between the different different tennis entities, uh, all the better. Um, I, I think this is this is great news. Now, ideas are easy. Uh, pulling the funds, figuring out where they're coming from, figuring out a way to organize them, figuring out a way to distribute them, uh, as we've seen <laughs> on, on bigger issues than, than, uh, than struggling tennis players is not the easiest thing to do. But if this comes to fruition, man, what a, what a big deal and, uh, and props to the people involved. All right, Andy, it is always a pleasure. Happy anniversary to you and Brooke. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, look forward to seeing you on Monday. She should be given a medal for 11 years of this. A medal indeed. That was that was pretty good. All right, and that's going to do it for this week's TC Live podcast. Reminder, you can catch every episode on the Tennis Podcast Network and on all your podcast platforms. Next week, the theme is the U.S. Open, the last five years, and a couple blasts from the past as well. Great interviews, great guests. A lot of Djokovic, a lot of Nadal, a lot of first-time major champions on the women's side. Not going to want to miss that as well. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the TC Live podcast. Stay safe, everybody. We'll keep bringing you content next week. We'll see you then.